The beginning of the 20th century evolved out of an era of free-thinking atheists and agnostics who challenged the Protestant hegemony of the day. Key among these mavericks was author and filmmaker Rupert Hughes, uncle to Howard Hughes. In 1932, Hughes published Souls for Sale, his wickedly playful satire of the Bible Belt and Hollywood. Souls for Sale offers a glimpse into the emerging jazz age of movie making against the backdrop of a country moving from its traditional roots into the kinetic ways of Hollywood. And in case you think I wrote that, I didn't. I'm quoting that from the publicity. It's very good, whoever wrote it. Hi, this is the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle, and uh, joining me once again on the show today, and I'm delighted, is Terry Linval, a film historian who occupies the C.S. Lewis Chair of Communication and Christian Thought at Virginia Wesley. Wesleyan University, Virginia, in the States, and his book, Souls for Sale, Rupert Hughes and the novel Hollywood Religion, is published by Cascade Books, and Terry joins me now from the States. Terry, hi. Hi there. Good to be with you. Go back in time with you. hundred years ago today. Are you the first academic who's ever had an academic publication made into a Hollywood movie? Well, that, um, that I don't know that, but it's really kind of fascinating. That came out of my Sanctuary Cinema, or no, my God on the Big Screen book. And it's a book about prayers in movies. And so um, I, I received a grant and we put together, a group of friends and myself, uh, a documentary feature about 96 minutes long that chronicles how prayer has been used from the silent era up to Talladega Nights and uh, some more recent films. And so we, we were just amazed and we, we structured it in such a way that we begin with the call to prayer, basically people calling out to God, oh Lord, uh, dear God, and then moving all the way through different kinds of prayers and ending up with um, the, the Lord's Prayer and a whole series of amens. And it was a delight to, to put it together, uh, just very fascinating. And so we have just kind of finished it and uh, we'll be streaming it soon. We sent it off to a couple of festivals to see if they'll accept it, uh, but it's, it's not basically a, a social issue documentary, like many documentaries are. It's just really an entertaining documentary that raises questions about how we learn to pray and whether or not it's the churches or the prayer book teaching us or whether it's Hollywood. And in many ways, it's Hollywood. Now, who was, who was Rupert Hughes? Rupert Hughes is, is really quite a character. Um, he was a, really a famous author. He wrote quite a few books in the teens, the 19 teens. And um, he was hired then by Samuel Goldwyn and Goldwyn Pictures to begin writing screenplays for him. And he, he really was kind of a really great author. He was one of the best people that, um, that Goldwyn really was able to collect for his, his stable of writers. He was also the uncle of Howard Hughes. And so um, we became, I became interested in him when I discovered a little movie that he had made out of a book that he wrote. And the book was called Souls for Sale. And it's his satire, not only on conservative Christianity in the Midwest, but also kind of a satire on Hollywood. And um, he wrote the book. It was atrocious, reviewed poorly by the New York Times. And so he thought, well, it's a bad book. Maybe it'll make a good movie. But it didn't. He boulderized it uh, after it had been serialized in Red Book magazine and um, tried to clean it up. And it turns out to be a kind of a, a clever quite humorous uh, story, which really gets rid of a lot of the religious controversy that is in his book. Yeah, how did Souls for Sale, both book and movie, capture the changing culture of the 1920s? 
Well, I, I think what is happening in um, the teens is really quite remarkable. Uh, at the beginning of about 1910, 1911, Congregationalists were looking at film as a weapon against Satan. They saw film and, and the movie picture industry as a way to um, really win souls for uplift, for education, for social justice. And there was a minister whose name was uh, Herbert Jump up in uh, Connecticut, who wrote probably one of the first publications for film, which was called um, The Religious Possibilities of the Motion Picture. And uh, in this little pamphlet, Jump basically says, this is the way that Jesus taught. Jesus taught in parables. He taught in little stories. And at this time, we had one or two real kind of films, about 15 minutes long. And so he saw them as parables. And he said, take, for example, the whole story of uh, the Good Samaritan. I mean, it really makes for a great dramatic scenario. You have essentially violence at the beginning. You've got this kind of these outlaws who come and take an unsuspecting traveler and they beat him up and they rob him and they leave him there. And then you've you've got kind of a story of the day. It's a very contemporary story. You could make it kind of very exciting. And the bad guys actually get away in this movie, um, as they do in the story of the Good Samaritan. We never hear what happens to them and their booty. And then it, it attacks the religious people of the day who are hypocrites. And so we could do that as well. And, and Jump said, all it needs is a really snappy little title, like um, something, Adventures on the Highway or Raiders of the Lost Samaritan. I don't know. But he he, uh, he just really had a lot of kind of fun with this. Jump saw the possibilities. And so the church jumped into movie making during the, the teens. And to, by the end of the teen, uh, Kodak gave the Presbyterian Church over 2,000 projectors to use in churches. Uh, the Methodist had, in 1919, the largest centenary uh, out in Columbus, Ohio, where they showed films on a screen of about 146 by 139 feet. It was huge. They showed over 800 films, and they sent Methodists back to their churches with the, the call to make movies. And so there was really this kind of life and vivacity coming for religious people to get involved in showing movies in churches. In fact, they, they would project uh, movies onto the walls of the sanctuaries, much like people do today with hymns. And so you could read from the walls what was going on. So that's not a new trend that we see today. But religion was very strong at that time. Christianity was really embracing film and trying to do good things with it. How does American religion enter its modern phase? Because you write about the change uh, that Hollywood was was working uh, to, at the ways it was working to change the perception of religion in the 1920s. I wonder how American religion, though, entered its modern phase in the in in the movies in the 1920s. Yeah, that, that's a very good question because it has a variety of answers. I think one, I, I think first off, there's the higher criticism coming out of Germany, and um, we find that there are quite a few progressives and moderns who are beginning to kind of doubt the authenticity of scripture. Um, they're beginning to kind of deconstruct it in different ways. And so many of the intellectuals of the time began to kind of challenge the veracity of what scripture is about. It's just a bunch of good stories uh, for people. Uh, and so in, in, at Princeton Seminary, you, you've got the great split between the fundamentalists and the modernists. You also have religious personalities like Billy Sunday 
uh, in the teens, and Amy Semple McPherson of the Four Square Church in the 20s who are embracing media. And uh, Billy Sunday saw movies as a great alternative to saloons and to the theater itself, which he saw as immoral. And so there were many movies that were kind of very moral tales of, of how we need to help one another, how we need to help the poor, uh, how you can forgive one another. D.W. Griffith did a lot of these kinds of films and other studios. But then all of a sudden, uh, we get this mix of Christianity and American civil religion. And one of my favorite films that did this was um, a film called Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm. And Mary Pickford plays uh, this impish little girl that she is full of mischief, just delight. Mary Pickford, and um, she has been denied dinner because she's been naughty. But her aunts tell her to kind of clean up the dinner table and put everything away. So she puts away, she starts to put away one cherry pie. And it's, you can see, and you can almost taste how delicious and sumptuous it is. I mean, it's just there. Um, and uh, she picks it up and, and she's about to take a bite out of it. And she looks on the wall and there's a sampler that her aunts have put up there. And it says from the, the book of Exodus, thou shalt not steal. So the Ten Commandments comes and strikes her. So it's a really kind of good biblical base to this young impish girl. But then she puts the pie down and walks out of the room. But just before she walks out of the room, she sees another sampler over the doorway. And this sampler says, God helps those who help themselves. And so she runs back to the pie and eats the pie. Of course, that scripture is that the sampler is not from scripture. It's Benjamin Franklin. Uh, and so you get this mix of the Bible and American civil religion coming together. And little by little, we begin to kind of sell into this, this kind of idea of success and prosperity that will hit us in the 20s and, and take over. And so modernity comes in kind of quietly and attempts in a Faustian way the people who are going. And little by little, the churches kind of surrender uh, to the movies. Yeah, in what ways was Hughes equally dismissive of both religion and Hollywood? Well, he was very dismissive of um, of the church, first of all, the Midwestern church, very much like H.L. Lincoln after him and, and Mark Twain and Robert Ingersoll before him. And he, he saw it basically after he'd gone to Yale. He, he learned that these were all kind of myths. None of them were true. And this was way before C.S. Lewis came along and said, basically, every myth can be true. But it also can be historical as, as a god that dies in Egyptian culture or in Greek culture. In Jewish culture, it actually happened once where there was a man who claimed to be God, and he died, and he came back to life. And the historicity is, is very remarkable uh, when you read the Gospels and the New Testament. So they he saw this as kind of all fairy tales and myth and everything else. Uh, he, he really kind of railed against the... Uh, the legalism, and, and there were probably personal reasons. I mean, reasons he became a great advocate of divorce, and of course, one thing the Bible says that God hates is divorce, and so it was very difficult for him to kind of accept this this idea that went against his own morality or immorality, and so he became a great advocate for divorce of of helping people get out of bad marriages, as he himself got out of bad marriages um, that that he had entered into, and so. He has this, this, this sense that there are a bunch of hypocrites. And, and he even wrote a, kind of a, a book on how many religious wars there were, how many religious criminals there were. Most of the people in jails, he said, were 
were Christians who had stolen from others, abused others, murdered others, maimed others. And, and so he really had this vendetta against the church. Uh, they, they grew almost venomous. But he, he still had a good sense of humor um, in, in many ways. And he also looked at Hollywood, and he was tempted to Hollywood, but he saw himself as a writer, kind of an elite writer. But he went out there, and and he was seduced by Hollywood. I mean, they they treated him well, and he fit into the whole public relations of Hollywood in the early 20s of saying, no, this is a good place. This is a holy wood place. Uh, this is their churches on every on every corner. Uh, and so he became part of this whole movement to show the light of Hollywood. Um, there was a, a, a book that came out this time by Lawrence Stern that was, was titled, Can Anything Good Come Out of Hollywood? And it was a takeoff on Nathaniel's question in the gospel about Jesus when he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And the implied answer is, of course, yes. And so to the answer to the question, can anything good come out of Hollywood? The implied answer is yes. But he still saw that there were a lot of things going on, and there were scandals coming along with uh, William Desmond Taylor and Fatty Arbuckle and others just when his book was coming out and the movie was coming out, that, that he recognized there is a darker side, but he didn't want to kind of focus on that. He did focus on the na naivety of both the church and Hollywood, though, of thinking they were good people when they were all banned. Yes, I mean, having watched Souls for Sale, and we should say that it's it, there's only one copy of it they found a copy of it. It was a lost movie, wasn't it, for many years? And they find a copy in Czechoslovakia. Yeah, somewhere. And, and it's it's wonderful because they have a new score to it. And um, you get the tinted frames. Oh, it's beautiful. It, it's, yeah, it, it is really kind of a, a, a surprise to watch uh, because it fits in with so many other great exposés of Hollywood from uh, King Vidor's show people all the way to uh, uh, the player uh, so many other movies about Hollywood that just kind of expose it and have fun with it. Yes, and it's very much uh, it's a satire of the dream machine, isn't it? So, what's it all about anyway? We better tell people what 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 actually happens in Souls for Sale. Well, it's a, it's a story of a, a young girl. Her name is Remember, or she's called Mem, and um, she lives with her fundamentalist father in the Bible Belt and her mother, who is all suffering because she has to listen to her husband's sermons. Anyway, she wants to escape, and um, a handsome stranger comes along. And so she runs away, elopes with this handsome stranger, who in the movie turns out to be basically a homicidal serial killer. He marries women for money and then kind of kills them. Of course, Mem has no money, but he is still going to try to take advantage of her and um, then dispose of her. But before he can kind of complete the honeymoon on the train, she jumps off uh, somewhere in, in New Mexico or, or Arizona and uh, is out in the desert. And so goes through this kind of wandering in the desert, just passes by a cross in the desert. I mean, it, it's, it just happens to be there. Yes, that happens yeah. to be, just be, happens to be there. Yes. Yes, it happens to be there, cross. And so she clings to the cross, but she's rescued by a sheep. And this is the time of Valentino, who played the great kind of uh, sheik lover in the, in the early silent era. And uh, so the sheik comes up, but the sheik who rescues her and brings her water happens to be a director. And so her escape from the train in the desert really puts her at a film shoot that is out there where they're shooting in the sands of the desert. 
uh, a chic m- movie. And so she has been told time and time again that um, Los Angeles, the city of angels, really should be called Los Diabolis, the, the city of the devil. And so she's very fearful of all of these Hollywood people, but they're very kind to her. They form a community that that give her food and drink and laugh with her and very different from in the book, the kind of staid congregation that she came from in the Midwest. And so she finds there and she goes out and she tries to find a job anywhere she can, but she can't find a job. And so she's given kind of a a role as an extra in the movies. And um, so she, she works her way through and it becomes like a star is born where the leading lady, of course, kind of falls, but, She's afraid because of the scandals of Hollywood. Uh, Sin is not bad. Scandal is bad. If people find out what you've done, then you're in trouble. And so she knows that she has been technically married to this kind of serial killer who has now discovered that she's become kind of a movie star and is coming back to get her. And so um, temptations come to her. The director and the star actor both kind of want to be her man. And so she's kind of really kind of struggling with everything there. But she becomes the kind of star that is there. And then at this big climactic scene where there are circus tents and there's kind of a wind, there's an earthquake, there's a hurricane. I mean, everything hits California. They, they don't get rain that much. But in this movie, they get a lot of rain. And um, so the villain comes back. And the villain's going to expose her. But the villain comes and saves someone's life and dies by running into a wind machine and getting all chopped up. We don't see all the details of that as we would in kind of a Tarantino film. But um, every, she ends up with the director and they live happily ever after. And the father and mother come out and basically kind of embrace her. The father very reluctantly, but the mother is really happy for what she's done because she has become her own person. And so if you if you want to find who you are, you've got to go to Hollywood, not for success, but to find your identity. And so it's it's really kind of his propaganda is kind of stuck all over it. But uh, he's he's playing off the idea that in Hollywood, there are bodies and souls for sale. But sometimes if you've got a good soul, you can sell it and you might as well have fun with it. Mm. And uh, the um, he really does play on and subvert the idea of a religious pilgrimage, doesn't he? He does very much. I mean, you're, you're moving from one kind of desert. Uh, where her father and mother, her father particularly in the church in the neighborhood, she it's like she's in Egypt. And so she has gone through the wilderness and finally come to this kind of great spring, this this Hollywood, this Hollywood place where um, it is the promised land for her and everything comes her way. Who were some of the famous stars who appeared in the movie? I, I didn't recognize a lot of the names. I have to confess, I'm, I'm not knowledgeable about silent movies. I know more about the talkies. But who are some of the famous stars who appear in the film? Um, the, the most famous, of course, is Charlie Chaplin. And he is there filming a movie called A Woman in Paris. Um, and he gets on the ground. And I mean, it's just it's a delightful scene. There is also Eric von Stroheim, who would do the film Greed, Blind Husbands. Um, and he is this, this kind of Germanic director, just very kind of powerful and tyrannical, but he, he's very light in this. Uh, Lou Cody plays her kind of sinister husband uh, that is there. Scudder, I think I think his name is. Scudder, yeah. Um, yeah, Scudder. Mm. And there are others, I mean, just the, the idea of um, Valentino. Richard Dix is the director, and Frank Mayo is the, kind of the hero on the camel. 
and all of these kinds of great actors are there. But um, it's it's just really the, the best part of the movie is seeing behind the scenes. And I think that's when Hughes really has fun. Uh, as as we had talked earlier, when it's lunchtime and you see all the extras and all the staff kind of run, all the crew run to the uh, cafeteria tent where they're going to kind of interact with others. And then you see all the camels running to their kind of uh, food place. It's, it's just really a delightful. Yeah, it's almost a Marx Brothers moment, isn't it? It's, it, it is. It's, 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 it's got, got that energy to it. Yeah, and the, the title cards are fantastic. I mean, they're so funny and so clever and unexpected, really. What ways was the film an advertisement for the lifestyles of Hollywood, do you think? Well, I think it shows uh, pretty much that Hollywood is a community. I mean, one thing that, that really it emphasizes um, is that these people care for each other. They're ordinary people. They walk, uh, they, they work really hard. They're, they're going to bed early. Uh, we don't see a lot of the kind of lavish parties that were advertised in the press, uh, that kind of the scandals that were there. And, and so it's, um, it, it's showing that they're holier and more decent out in Hollywood than they are anywhere else. Including oh, also in the film, I've forgotten about um, there is uh, Mae Bush. Uh, she's the actress with the bee stung lips. Uh, she's going to be in kind of Laurel and Hardy's Sons of the Desert and other places. But she's the, she's the actress that um, kind of falls and hurts her, her leg and so can't. I wondered, I wondered as I watched how many of those wonderful silent movie actors actually made it through into the talkies, apart from Chaplin and Eric von Stroheim. Not too many of, of these that we're seeing there. Um, it's still going to be another decade before, well, 1927, 28, about eight, eight years um, when the sound comes in. So the, Hollywood always looks for fresh talent. In fact, that became kind of one of the um, dominant tropes in the book of The Casting Couch, uh, where you would get lascivious Hollywood producers who would take advantage of women who were coming out there and... Uh, I think there, there was one card. What was it? Um, um, I'm, I'm trying to think what it was, but one really little fun bit that said, uh, don't try to um, oh, let's see here. It says, uh, I think that one of the director of the casting agents says, you poor simp. He says, selling yourself to me wouldn't sell you to the director or the producer. It's the public you've got to sell yourself to, not to me. And yes. so uh, they're, they're basically saying, yeah, if, if you want to kind of seduce me to get in the movies, it's not going to work. And yet it just really tries to emphasize that what it takes to become a star is hard work and talent and just giving yourself over to this vocation. Yes, the directors and casting people in the movie are very high-minded and principled gentlemen, aren't they? Who would never take they are. who would never take advantage of a lady, <laughs> even when, that, when that's so true of Hollywood, isn't it? <laughs> absolutely, you can see um, Hughes with his tongue firmly in his cheek. I think. Um, how does the film differ from the book? I wasn't able to actually get a copy uh, get a copy of the book online, but um, I imagine that that he made changes for the movie. Oh, he made tremendous changes. Um, I think when, when you look at the book. It is just angry. Um, basically, in the novel, uh, Mem looks at her her father's church as a grave, um, and, and it's devoid of laughter. And, and it's, everything that could be bad about it is bad. And so, um, in fact, what is the, the great irony of the book is the fact that the, the church is going under. It can't financially sustain itself. And so it's the money that she Mem makes off of the movies that is poured back into the church to keep the church going. 
And so it's basically saying the church needs the movies. The movies don't need the church. Mm, fascinating. And uh, so in what ways then is Souls for Sale really a battle between religion and the movies? Um, I, I think it, it, the caricature of religion here is, is kind of a fundamentalism legalism. Um, and so it, it really does not have anything about kind of a, an evangelical and orthodox Christianity to it. I mean, it's just it's, it's been kind of sandpapered off. And um, there is this kind of judgmental feel for uh, the Bible Belt. On the other hand, uh, there is this affection for Hollywood. Uh, it's it's human. It has, makes its mistakes. There are normal people uh, that you see there. And so it's to be preferred over um, kind of your, your regular Christian community. Mm. Terry Linval, thank you very much. A film historian who occupies the C.S. Lewis Chair of Communication and Christian Thought at Virginia Wesleyan University, Virginia in the States. And Terry's book, Souls for Sale, Rupert Hughes and the novel Hollywood Religion, is published by Cascade Books. Terry, thank you so much. Brent, thank you so much. It's, it's so fun to kind of get back into this book. So, But it, it's fun to kind of remember those stories a century ago. I mean, th this is a long time and it seems like nothing has changed. Uh, we're still dealing with a lot of the same kind of issues. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brent. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com.